0: It's 2022 and new year means new you. If you want to support the show and get an amazing product for the man in your life, look no further than Fable Beard Company. They have a ton of great products for both your hair and your beard. Now, having said that, let me tell you about one of my favorite items and that's their CBD infused beard oil, specifically the grower. This particular one comes with an amazing scent profile of crisp apples, fresh pear, aged amber and jasmine. It is sure to please any beardsman out there. Now, all of their CBD beard oils contain 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum CBD oil to help grow and strengthen your beard hair. Not only does this come in beard oil, but they also have beard butter, co-wash conditioner, and a beard wash. Now, my beard has never felt softer than when I started using Fable Beard products, but the CBD oil took it to an entirely different level. Now, head over to www.fablebeardcompany.com. And remember to use the discount code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every single order. Believe me, you're going to love these CBD products. All right, let's get back to the show. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfort. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 14, the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Welcome back to the show. It's a new year, 2022. Hope everybody's doing well. And Season 4 continues to roll right along. Now, last episode, we spoke about the lead up to Pearl Harbor and the diplomatic maneuvering that took place in the days leading up to that attack. And one of the things I did not mention, was the fact that the Japanese did not only hit Hawaii, at least I don't think I mentioned that, they struck all over the Pacific Basin, attacking the British Malaysian Peninsula, or what was called Malaya at that time. They attacked the base in Hong Kong, they attacked Clark Field in the Philippines, and even hit the U.S. islands of Guam and Wake. Now, all of this happened within seven hours and three minutes of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, just a few hours after that, the American Air and Naval bases in Manila, as well as Midway, were also struck. So today we take a slightly different look at the attack, or at least the aftermath. I want to examine the immediate aftermath and the idea, a very controversial one, that the U.S. government knew the attack was going to happen and allowed it to take place. However, before we do that, let's hop in the time machine, head back to 1941 with our Song of the Week, which this week is Snap Your Fingers by Al Jolson and comes to us courtesy of the Free Music Archive. We'll see you in just a second. Oh, honey, honey, just had yeah, that dance. Oh, lovey, lovey, oh, lovey, lovey, that music is grand. Oh, sweetie, sweetie, oh, sweetie, sweetie, don't have my taste. I want to dance. I want to dance. I just can't wait. Oh, honey, oh, honey, just hold me tight. I'm dancing mad. Good Snap your fingers and away you go. Snap your fingers and the whisper low. Just throw your shoulders high. Just roll that roguish eye. Snap your fingers as you roll along. You can go wrong. Don't you leave me, honey. Don't you leave me now. Don't you leave me now. Don't you dare leave me now. Oh, oh, don't say no, snap your fingers, away you go. Okay, while the narrative on the war generally goes that everyone fell in line and supported the war, this is partially true. Certainly, as one can imagine, there was some panic and consternation among the public. First of all, why would Japan attack if negotiations were ongoing? How much damage was done, and would the Japanese perhaps invade Hawaii or the west coast of the United States? To better assess the situation on the ground, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox, along with two assistants, made his way to Hawaii. Now, in those days, uh, this was no easy thing. First, he had to get to San Diego. Thus, he flew from Washington, D.C. to Memphis, where his plane was refueled, then on to El Paso, Texas. Now, due to bad weather, his party spent the night here in Texas, then made its way to San Diego. From San Diego, they embarked upon a four-engine flying boat, loaded down with medical supplies, and headed off to Hawaii. They landed on Oahu on the morning of December 11th. Now, Admiral Kimmel met Knox and his group at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, which was bleak and not at all like the tourist trap it had been before the war. Admiral Kimmel and General Short both admitted that the Japanese caught the Army and Navy off guard. Not only were they persuaded that such an attack was inconceivable, due to the great distance that there was between Hawaii and Japan, but the fact that discussions were still underway, put whatever anxieties they might have had about the possibility of surprise, like the one that occurred on December 7th, to rest. Now, Kimmel, who had received a general warning from the Navy Department on November 27th, believed the Japanese would most likely use submarines. He'd made all necessary provisions to deal with such an attack as a result. General Short, on the other side, thought it was um, that he believed that because of the high number of foreign Japanese in Honolulu, the Japanese would most certainly resort to sabotage. Now, in the end, Knox produced a report for FDR, and the next day he held a press conference. Interestingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, there are some differences between what Knox said publicly and what his report contained. Now, two major points made to the press was that A, the purpose of the attack was to knock the United States out of the war before it even got started. And B, the U.S. services were not on the alert against a surprise attack on Hawaii, a fact which meant there was a need for a formal investigation into the failure. Okay, so what were the differences between what he said publicly and privately? Well, first, Knox failed to note publicly that, in spite of the information that was available to Washington, Admiral Kimmel and General Short had actually not been warned since November twenty seventh, although the conditions since then had changed. The Army believed that the most likely form of an attack would come via sabotage. The Navy believed Japan was most likely going to attack Southeast Asia, and thus, at best, the danger to Hawaii would come via submarine. However, in Washington, things were different. First, they had access to the intelligence provided by the magic program. Second, There was the intimation of a surprise move, one which Washington was well aware of, because they had intercepted the Japanese instructions to Nomura. The United States was aware of the idea that for some reason, the time of 1 p.m. Eastern Time, or 7.30 in the morning in Hawaii, was of utmost importance. I don't think it's reasonable to expect Knox to admit this publicly, but he could have said it was reasonable for the commanders in Hawaii to be caught by surprise since negotiations were in fact ongoing. In other words, what I'm thinking is that they were laying these commanders out to dry. They were kind of getting ready to throw them under the bus, if not straight up throwing them out already. The second thing Knox left off was the fact that the army, of which the Air Force was a part, remember, at this point it was the Army Air Corps, um, they did not have enough fighter planes on the island to conduct reconnaissance because those sorts of planes had been diverted to aid the British, the Chinese, the Dutch, and the Russians. Now, finally, Knox questioned the suitability of Pearl Harbor as a site for large concentrations of naval vessels going forward. He noted the serious damage inflicted on it. He recommended that, pending a study on the suitability of the base, no large concentration of naval vessels can be permitted there. Now, at the end, I think what Knox could have done is to have admitted to several points. First, surprise. Second, inadequate equipment. And third, prompt retaliation on the part of American forces to such an extent that the third wave was a failure. Um, Finally, I think they could have noted there were previous errors in judgment without giving any aid and comfort to the Japanese, who were, of course, listening. Instead, Americans would ask these questions, such as who was responsible for providing the commanders um, in the field with intelligence, who was responsible for seeing they were promptly properly warned, Why was the Pacific Fleet headquartered at Pearl Harbor in the first place? I should mention that in his remarks, Knox said the president would launch a formal investigation into these events. This led to both houses of Congress agreeing to drop their proposals to conduct their own inquiries into what happened. Was this a good idea? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. One of the most interesting aspects of all of this, in my mind, is the extent to which the public was kept in the dark about the damage done by the Japanese. Even senators and congressmen, to some extent or another, were kept in the dark, and when things did get out, it provoked a reaction on the part of the administration in general, and the president in particular. One example was when Senator David Walsh of Massachusetts and Representative Carl Vinson of Georgia, the chairman of their branch of Congress uh, Naval Affairs Committees, met with Admiral Stark just the day after the attack. Stark gave them honest answers about the damage that was done at Pearl Harbor. Four ships were sunk, the USS Arizona, California, West Virginia, and Olgolala. Two were capsized, I should say, and 12 others were heavily damaged. Now, Walsh, who had previously been a member of the America First Committee, thought it better if somebody else went and confronted the president and encouraged him to, or tried to encourage him to tell the truth to the American people. In the end, he was convinced to do it. Now FDR flew into a rage, demanding that Walsh divulge the name of the person who had given him the information. Walsh admitted it was Admiral Stark. The president said Stark should never have given out the facts about Pearl Harbor, not even to the chairman of the Senate Committee on Naval Affairs. And within days, Walsh publicly acknowledged that the president should be the judge of what information about war operations was given to the public. It was because of this fact that the Senate committee decided not to question naval officials on the extent of ship losses at Pearl Harbor. Harry S. Truman, senator from Missouri, and chairman of the Senate Defense Investigating Committee, also announced his group would not investigate the attack. Quote, no attempt will be made to inquire into the circumstances of the Japanese surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on Sunday, end quote. And what I find interesting is the move on December 16th, just nine days after the attack, relieving both General Short and Admiral Kimmel of duty. There was no hearing. They were charged with nothing. Both were well respected in their branch of the military and yet were essentially scapegoated without so much as a chance to defend themselves. Now this of course is controversial, but really I look back and wonder how they missed the signs that Pearl Harbor not only could be attacked, but very likely would be hit. Admiral James Richardson was Kimmel's predecessor and had been relieved of command in February 1941. Why? Because he had argued to not only the Chief of Naval Operations, but to the President himself, that the idea of forward basing the bulk of the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor was a bad idea. In an article published in 1945 titled, quote, The Final Secret of Pearl Harbor, written by John T. Flynn, Admiral Richardson, Commander in Chief of the U.S. Fleet, who was the Navy's foremost expert on PAN, if such a person existed, Vehemently de- disagreed with FDR's decision to move the fleet to Pearl Harbor. Quote, it was Richardson's belief, and indeed generally supported by the Navy, that the fleet should never be burst inside Pearl Harbor where it would be a mark for attack. This was particularly true in such troubled times when the airways of the East were hot with rumors of approaching conflict. What is more, Richardson held the belief that Pearl Harbor was the logical first point of attack for the Japanese high command. Wetted as it was, to the theory of undeclared and surprise warfare, end quote. After only one year in command, Richardson was replaced in January 41 by Admiral Kimmel. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to theamericanhistorypodcast.com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website, and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. Now this leads me to ask the question, why were both Kimmel and Short replaced? They were not given the intelligence that had been generated by Operation Magic. Remember, all of the messages coming out of Washington to the troops in the field was that an attack from Japan was likely to hit Southeast Asia. None of them had signaled they believed Hawaii would be hit. FDR was protected by his people, of course, from responsibility, claiming it was a surprise attack. No one could have known this was coming. Okay, then why wasn't that same protection then given to Kimmel and Short? No, I don't think there was some deep, dark conspiracy. But I do think the president and many of his advisors, as well as a good percentage of people, although not the majority, wanted the United States to get into the war to assist the British. The question was how to do it. I think the administration realized that Japanese pride would mean they'd be more than willing to deliver the needed first strike if they could be goaded into action. Thus, the administration of FDR spent several years slowly ratcheting up the pressure on the Japanese until they finally broke. The Pacific Fleet was moved into Pearl Harbor against the advice of the naval hierarchy to either act as bait or to be ready to move into action if war broke out. Should Japan attack, say, the Philippines or Guam or Wake, the battle force would be in perfect position to surge forward and take the fight to the enemy. If, however, the Japanese were to get more daring and, say, attack Pearl, well, hopefully hopefully the fleet would not only defend itself, but any casualties suffered would then ignite the fuse of the American war machine backed up by an angry public. What I do not believe is that FDR knew all of, how all of this would play out. Um, he might have been a masterful politician, but he was not a magician. He wasn't Dr. Strange using the time stone to see all possible futures. Now, before you have think I've gone off the deep end, let me assure you this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. Naval historian Ian Toll admits in his book Pacific Crucible that the decision to lay the blame on both Admiral Kimmel and General Short was an attempt by Washington to ensure blame was directed away from Washington. Now, Kimmel's successor was 56-year-old Rear Admiral Chester Nimitz, chief of the Navy's Bureau of Navigation. Nimitz was picked by FDR himself, who supposedly said, quote, tell Nimitz to get the hell out to Pearl and stay there until the war is won, end quote. In fact, FDR called Nimitz himself, and when the flag secretary... Insulted, when the caller addressed the admiral as Chester, asked who was calling, the response was, quote, This is the president. Put him on the phone, end quote. They spoke briefly over the phone, and then the admiral headed over to the White House. Two hours later, he returned and simply said, quote, I'm going to the Pacific, end quote. Now, interestingly, this was the second time in one year that Nimitz had been offered the command. In early 1941, he turned down the offer, as it would have sent him to the top of the admiral's list, and there were 50 others in front of him. The last thing he wanted was the resentment that such an appointment could bring. However, now, well, war changes everything, right? Because Nimitz oversaw the Navy's personnel department, that's the Bureau of of Navigation was the personnel department despite the fact that it's not called the personnel department, but that's a whole nother story. Anyways, Nimitz, like the rest of the staff, was saddled with an immense workload. Bones were ringing almost without interruption and there was a ton of telegrams coming into the office. Those killed in action had to be replaced. Officers whose ships were out of action had to be reassigned. The fleet was rapidly mobilizing and there were a million things to do. It was the job of the Bureau of Navigation to do the grim job of tabulating accurate casualty lists and then notifying the families of the sailors and officers who were killed in action. The reality was the U S Navy had suffered a massive defeat and a wave of despair swept through the ranks. It would have been easy to succumb to this. Part of his immense job as the commander in chief of Pacific Fleet would be to boost the morale of the men underneath him. Chester received a two rung promo- promotion, moving from two to four stars. He was described as a white haired Texan by the New York Times. Now, unknown outside of the Navy, unlike, say, General Douglas MacArthur, Nimitz shunned the, the limelight. This led to an image of the Admiral taking shape in the public mind of a man who is a harsh, A harsh disciplinarian uh, was ill humored and remote. Of course, it was far from the truth, but for the time being, it did no harm. Notified on December 18th that he'd be headed to Hawaii ASAP, Nimitz instead, or insisted, I should say, on taking a train instead of a plane. He'd been going nonstop since December 7th, and he, he needed to catch up on his sleep. So he would leave the East Coast on December 19th and enjoy the trip in the comfort of a Pullman sleeper arriving in California on the 22nd of December. First, he took the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's Capital Limited for the journey to Chicago. From there, they would head west to California. Just a brief note about Admiral Nimitz. Born in 1885 in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is a town of German immigrants just outside of San Antonio, his relations were of the warrior gentry class. The von Nimitz family could trace its ancestry all the way back to the 12th century, and even had, at one point, borne a coat of arms. Too poor to afford a college education, the last thing the young man expected was to actually attend college. Most likely he would run a country in, just as his family had done. However, a chance encounter with two army lieutenants at the age of 15 changed his future. They noted that West Point was tuition free for those who could win an appointment. All of the appointments to the US Military Academy had been actually made that year, but by chance, there was one appointment to Annapolis available. It would be based on performance on the entrance exam, given in the spring. By that point, he was a junior. Um, Chester did not have the relevant coursework, so he rose at 3 a.m. every morning to crack the books. Because he was popular around town, people were willing to help him. A local teacher tutored the future leader in algebra, geometry, history, geography, and grammar. The school principal even lent a hand. In the spring of 1901, the young man passed the entrance exam with the highest marks of all the applicants in that region. He won his place in the Naval Academy class of 1905. A natural leader, it was clear from the beginning that the Navy was just the place for young Chester. Life at the Academy was harsh, but nothing worse than what he was used to having grown up in Texas. Never having experienced luxury living, the draft crumbling dormitory annex was no issue for him. He never struggled in class, but math did give him a bit of a challenge. Even so, he was near the top of his class, graduating 7th out of 114 students. He would go on to serve in various capacities, including spending time on gunboats, submarines, destroyers, cruisers, and even battleships, as well as recruiting and war planning. Now, for a man like Nimitz, who by 1941 had been in the Navy for 40 years, Pearl Harbor must have felt like a personal insult. He believed in the Navy. His life was the Navy. He may never have served as an aviator or on board an aircraft carrier, but Nimitz had spent more than his fair share of time at sea. He was not the blood-and-thunder sort of leader. Instead, he gave his men wide latitude to carry out their duties and only came down on them when they showed they were incompetent or complacent. Further, he always looked out for the welfare of those who served underneath him. As he traveled through Arizona, he studied photographs, and briefing reports on the damage the Japanese had inflicted on the Navy. He realized the full challenge that lay before him. He had been given a shattered command, a fleet crippled and damaged, as well as a staff that was demoralized by the events of December 7th. Thus, he arrives in California at the scheduled time. Uh, let me say that again, I don't like that. Um, he arrived in California at the scheduled time, but his trip from San Diego to Hawaii was delayed by weather. Thus, he was forced to take a flying boat on December 24th, Christmas Eve, Ever the gentleman, he apologized to the crew for taking them away from their families for the holiday. It was 7 o'clock on a wet, gray, and gloomy Christmas morning when Nimitz arrived over Pearl Harbor. He was able to get his first glimpse of the carnage along Battleship Row. The plane, a seaplane, landed on the oily surface of the harbor and went past the upturned hulk that was the USS Oklahoma. When he disembarked from the plane, he caught his first whiff of fuel oil and burning ships. Nimitz, who was personally close to Admiral Kimmel, did not take command of the fleet immediately. First, he took a week to get to know the lay of the land, so to speak. He surprised officers with his vast memory, even knowing the name of service, uh, and service record of junior officers who had once served under him. One junior engineering officer who had served in a submarine division commanded by Nimitz remarked, quote, he had little reason to remember me, quote. but when they came face to face in the corridor, Nimitz knew his name, and details about his service. Now, instead of the cinematic naval hero some might have wanted, what they got in their new commander-in-chief was an old-school gentleman, someone who exuded quiet, calm confidence. This was what the Navy really needed in December of 1941. By appointing Chester Nimitz, FDR had hit a home run. Now in the end, Nimitz came to realize that as devastating as the Japanese attack was, and make no mistake, it was both devastating and embarrassing, it was not the knockout punch the Imperial Japanese Navy had wanted to deliver. They failed to hit the repair shops along the piers, and they missed the fuel tank farms, which stored the fleet's 4.5 million barrels of fuel. Had the Japanese hit those tanks, it might have taken the United States years to recover, thanks to the shortage of fuel oil and petroleum production in Europe. Furthermore, while the battleships were wounded, many could be raised and repaired. Nimitz noted that had they been caught at sea with no air cover, they would all have sunk unrecoverable to the bottom of the Pacific and with them would have gone 20,000 men. Finally, the submarine survived and thus that part of the war could start immediately. In fact, although I'm sure Alfred Thayer Mahan would have had a cow. The fact is the loss of the battleships was not a catastrophe for the United States. It might even be said that it was beneficial. The fact is the battleships were too slow to effectively operate with the carriers. They were vulnerable to air attack, and, um, as one officer stated it, the Japanese had in essence converted the U.S. Navy from a 17-knot fleet to a 25-knot fleet. At the end of the day, the attack made the Navy accept the fact that it was naval aviation and submarines that were the future of the force. Okay, so it's time to end this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please head over to iTunes and drop a five-star review. If you would like more history goodness, head over to our Patreon, where for as little as $10 a month, you'll get access to two bonus shows, as well as over, that's probably 20 hours of content right now. So my name is Sean, and you've been listening to episode 14 of World War II in the Pacific. We'll see you all soon. Wondering who is... Shut was it off or